I'm your host, Rena Friedman Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Hey, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mommy's calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy because he knows you best. He's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees possibilities. Oh, won't you My dad says today's guest has the right philosophy on life. B. Franklin is going for the gusto all the way till 100 years old and then asking for more. B, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. I am so excited to connect with you, Queen B. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And how are you? It's nice meeting you. Nice to meet you too. I've already told my dad about you. <laughs> what is there to tell about me? Well, I'm excited to talk to somebody from another generation. That's definitely the truth. What um, is the key to living to 99 years old? Thinking positively all the time. And mm. bad times and good times. You have to think of the best. I love that. I would love to know too, like, what are your thoughts on aging and healthcare and, and caring for yourself? My children used to make fun of me sometimes because I always had at least one year's examination by my family doctor. And they sort of poo-pooed it as, if you're feeling well, you don't have to go to the doctor. But that's what I, I wanted to make sure. That's how I found out that I had a mild heart condition because I wasn't sure about it. But I'm thank God I'm fine and I really don't consider it a problem. That's interesting. Yeah. My parents too, they always were very good about going to checkups. I am of the generation that just goes if something's wrong. Right. So that's funny. I should say I don't, I understand it, but I don't want to go around with it. Have you kept the same doctor for many years? Like, do you have a relationship with your doctor and do you feel like your doctor cares about you? It's not my, what they call the family doctor or the primary doctor. I think they call it now. And he's been a family doctor for must be 45 years. We have a good connection. And I, as I said, I feel well. I've had I've had plenty of things that go wrong, but I always came out smiling and, and alive. Yeah. I would love to know too, like, who were you as a little girl? Talk to me about Little B. Little B? Well, I was born and raised, in, partly raised in Philadelphia. We moved to New York and uh, I was nine years old. My father's business was here in New York and he had commuted for four years from Philadelphia to New York, five days a week. And he decided the business was going to be well and good and we should move to New York so he didn't have to travel by train five days a week. 
And so that's what we did. We moved from Philadelphia to Forest Hills in New York. So I really feel that that's where I grew up. I had a very nice young life. I was learning to play a classical piano. In fact, I was supposed to appear in town hall at one point. And foolishly, I told my piano teacher that I didn't want to do it anymore. I was tired of practicing every day because I was 16 at the time. And I had other interests besides playing the piano for a couple of hours every day. So my mother was very unhappy with me, but she couldn't get me to sit at the piano. So we gave it up and the piano teacher was not too happy with me, but I've always loved classical music. I, I like popular music too, but classical music was sort of in my bones. I love concerts and things like that, operas, ballet. As a matter of fact, I was at the at theater and a Broadway show last night and I stopped to speak to some my young woman who was in the York and I stopped to talk to her. I mentioned about playing the, having learned to play the piano. And she said, I knew it. You look like you have had music in you. And I said, I bet I do. I have, I have music because I love popular music. I love opera. That's what keeps me going, I think, is that I always can turn to the kind of music I like to listen to. And I also like popular music. I mean, my husband, Jerry, was a, a guest, actually, of Frank Sinatra. I think we have every album that Frank Sinatra made. And it was it was fun for both of us to go to hear Frank perform. And it really astounded me how patient he was with his audience because there were females in the audience who would be screaming, we love you, Frank. We love you, Frank. And Frank would say, thank you. I love you too. Some way or other, music gets into our everyday life, so to speak. I love that. Yes, I love music. Who else were your heroes or your inspiration? Who else did you love? My husband. Ooh. I really have a lot of people I, I love very much. I love my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, but I love my husband. I mean, he was, when people say the love of your life, he was the love of my life. He came home from the, from World War II. He was a, what they called it, camping of the bread. My age is the only bad thing that I, I don't like about being my age is that my memory isn't as sharp as it was at one time. He yes, was a photographer. He was, yeah. He was a, I can't think of the terminology now, but he had permission from the government. It was his job to be an official war photographer. And all of his photographs went through the Signal Corps. That's who sort of sponsored all the photographers that were working for the government. To think that he came back from the from the war, thinking that the best thing to do was to think positively, was astounding, considering the kind of pictures that he had to take. People who know us and have seen the um, photographs are also astounded that my husband, Jerry, was able to get to the life he lived with us because of what he had seen during the war it was terrible terrible he was a good photographer for one time when he came home he thought he would he had a lot met a lot of other photographers who were Hollywood paid photographers before the war started and they wanted him to go out to California and become work you know live out there he was very loyal to his his mother and he wouldn't leave she, she wouldn't go out there and he wouldn't leave so uh, we stayed in New York he gave up photography to go into my father's business. We never regretted not going out to California. We had a lot of friends out there, but our home was in New York. He sounds like a really good guy. How did you guys meet? The truth is that it would be a very long story to tell you, but I'll make it as brief as possible. I had a date with his best friend for a Saturday night 
And Jerry, my husband, learned from his best friend that he was going to be taking me out for the evening on the following Saturday night. So my husband, Jerry, said, would you mind if I double baited? But no, he said he didn't mind at all. Just get a date. He managed to get a date and we went out. He came to the house to let me know that he was going to be double dating with us. I kept him waiting because I was getting ready to go out on a date that particular day. So when I came down the steps to him, he said, the first thing out of his mouth was, you kept me waiting 10 minutes. And I apologized. He told me why he had stopped by. And that was it. He wanted to know what shows we wanted to see. And I said, any show. There were only, I think, four Broadway shows on, on Broadway at the end of the war. So I said, whichever some, uh, show you would like to see would be fine with me. And then he said, okay, I'll see you Saturday night. That was on a Friday. No, that was on a Thursday. Friday, the doorbell rings and who's there but Jerry Franklin. What was you doing there? Well, quote, I just was driving past and I thought I'd stop by to say hello. So I said, okay, you said hello. I'm getting ready to go out. We said goodbye, and that definitely was, I was going to see him Saturday night. When we met to go out for a date, Jerry picked us up with his date, and we drove into a hotel in Manhattan that had dinner dancing, and that's where we went. But and the name of the hotel, I don't recall. The music started. Jerry was sitting opposite me, and he gets up. He walks around his date and walks over to me, and he says, would you like to have this dance? And I said, Oh, sure, because I really did like him from the first minute I met him. So we danced for the whole set of music, and we came back to the, the table, and the other fellow's date said, would you like to join me in the ladies' room? And I said, oh, sure, which I never used to do, but I knew she was asking for a particular reason. So I got up, and as soon as we walked into the ladies' room, she said, you really like Jerry, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. She said, well, then I don't mind that I'm not dancing with him. And that's how it started. That was Saturday night. Sunday, we had tickets for a Giants football game. The temple that I belonged to at the time had been given a lot of tickets for veterans. So Jerry had a date. And my date, my double dating friend, ha had managed to get seats for the three of us. But we didn't, they were sitting up opposite one side of the field. But we drove to the city to the football game. And we had a delightful time in the car with conversation. And then my date decided that he wanted to go to east side of Manhattan for dinner. And he naturally asked Jerry if he'd like to go. And he said yes, and he would get a date for himself. And that's how it all started. From then, I saw him every single day. I was a senior at NYU when he had a job in Manhattan. And he said, you know, your subway stop a block away from where I go to work. How about meeting me for lunch the next day? And that's what happened. Every day I met him for lunch. Then I'd go to my home or I'd go back to school and he would go back to work. And we did that because the Thursday that I met him, my parents, it was November 1st, a Thursday, and my parents were, had left that day for a month's vacation. So every day we would get together. And by the time November 30th rolled around, we knew that, that this was it and that we were going to be married one day and whatever. When my parents came home on November 30th, and I told my mother, who was a very over, overbearing woman, so I told my mother, I didn't tell my father at the time, that I was in love with Jerry and that we wanted to be married and we wouldn't this was on November 30th and we wanted to wait until the holidays and become engaged and get married in, in June and my mother said absolutely not you don't know him long enough so I said all right I'll tell you what and she said and you have to date other fellows and I said okay 
But at the end of the holidays, I would like to become engaged and get married in June. No, I'm not giving you any guarantees because you won't date other, whatever. It was a real story between my mother and me. That day on November 30th, I said to him, she is never going to give me permission to marry you. So let's go get married, which is what we did. We were married on November 30th after a month of knowing each other. And we didn't tell anybody until February when there was a national holiday. All the businesses were closed to save oil because it was right after the war. We went out the night before and, and we decided going without being together for from November to February was just not worth workable for us anymore. So we had to tell our families, which is what we did. Jerry's family was delighted. My mother was furious. I never heard words like what she came out of her mouth before, but didn't faze me. And we never told them anything about why we did it or anything. My mother never knew that it was because of her that I did go against her wishes. But we had a wonderful life for 51 years. Just ended too soon. Aw, that's really sweet. Did he yeah. get along with your dad? Oh, yeah. My dad and I were always very close. Even when I was a little girl, my dad, when we lived in Philadelphia, the house was about two blocks away from a, a railroad passover or a bridge. And every night there was a freight train that went on that railroad. And my dad would take me every night before dinner, we'd go over to the overpass and watch the freight trains go underneath the bridge and we'd count. I became a compulsive compulsive counselor and numbers all the time. Numbers are going through my head ever since I was counting freight trains. If I see a train in front of me, you know, that I'm stopped for, I count the trains, how many trains there are. But that happens to be a very nice remembrance was I bring myself to thinking about my dad, who was a great man. So we got along very well. I was very happy in Philadelphia. And we were close in New York also. Every Sunday, dad and I would go for a walk, cold weather, summer weather. We'd just walk and talk and had a good time. My mother and I were sort of, I wasn't living, I think I wasn't living up to my mother's expectations. I kept my distance from my mother as much as I could, but I was very close with my dad. I was very close with, I had an older brother, and I was very close with him also. I adored my brother. And if I needed anything that I wanted, needed information about, like when war was declared, I was in, in Wisconsin at the university when war was announced. And the first thing I did, my brother was in the service at that point. And I called him right away, wondering if he was going to be sent overseas or not. He said, everything will be all right. You know, everything will be all right. I'll tell you if anything's wrong, everything will be all right. Just have faith, which is what I did because my brother told me to have faith. And that's what I did. And fortunately, he was never sent overseas. He was a flight instructor and he, he stayed in the States. And that's that's my happiness, my happiness and my, my three sons who have brought me much happiness. And now I have two grandsons and four great-grandchildren. That's so and beautiful. They're great, they're great children. They're great children. And so I've had a very, a very fortunate, I've had a very happy life. There have been some bumps in the road, but I think everybody in this world has bumps in the road at one time or another. And the thing is, if you think positively, you'll get back 
to thinking positively and not considering the bumps in the road. That's my sermon for the day. I love Thank that. You. I am curious though, like what were the expectations from your parents? And I kind of love too that, you know, you decided that you found love and you kind of pushed back against some of those expectations. Were there any other expectations that you're like, nah, that's not for me? The only thing my mother had expectation was, I know from experience of what she was doing with me that it dawned on me maybe 15 or 20 years ago what she was doing and I wasn't aware of it at the time. She was trying to get me to become my irresistible female and a very welcome man was going to come along and sweep me off my feet because I was at, so she had me take riding, horseback riding lessons, French lessons, dancing lessons. I mean, it was just unthinkable for me at the time. I didn't know what she was doing until years after I was married and I was thinking about it one day and I said she was grooming me to be some man's wife it never happened that's why she was so upset with me when I told her I was married because her dream was down the sewer but she came around eventually I love that and and I wonder too like were you different as a mom did you let your kids be who they were or did you try to make them something they weren't? No, no. we both of us try very much to let them do what they wanted to do. And to this day, well, the two older ones went back, went into my husband's business. Ken, whom you know, was always, from the time I think he had grew teeth in his mouth, he always did what he wanted to do. It was very hard to tell him to do it differently, but he managed I think he's successful in what he's doing. I know he's happy in what he's doing, and that's important. Yeah, I love that. What makes you happy? How do you define happiness? Have you found it? Well, I found happiness. As a matter of fact, my oldest son is making a not a surprise party, a birthday party for me in June. I was thinking, because he's made several parties for me about, I think this will be the fifth party he's made for me. And from the first one he made, I was so overwhelmed that he took this whole party on his own and planned it and everything that I felt compelled sitting at the table, the dining table, and thinking I just had to get up and personally thank him, which is what I did. I got up and I said something to him, you know, to the people who were in attendance about how grateful I was that, you know, he made this wonderful party. I have a lot of friends and friends to me, and it may not be for everybody, but friends to me, a friend is a person who is kind and caring. It doesn't make any difference whether poor or rich or wealthy, the designers or dancers, no matter what they are. I have friends who are very diverse in, in what they do, but they're very dear friends of mine. And my son, who is making this party, has invited, and I don't say this to brag, but because it's so astounding, 83 people who are coming to that party because it's my birthday. And they're all my friends. They're all my friends. They're kind and they're caring. And that's what counts. I don't care if they're professionally wealthy or whatever they do. I am very happy to be with them at all times. That's so cool. And it's going to be your 100th birthday, right? It's going to be my 100th birthday. So I kid my, with my great grandson. I say, you know that Nana's going to be a century in June. 
he doesn't even know what his sensory is. But I love I love to be able to say it. But it's so unusual. And I'm very thankful. My oldest son just walked into the house. So Rick, I'm talking about you. He's he's been very good and great. What are your thoughts on legacy? Well, I think if I had to wish anything, I would hope that they all have the same positive outlook on life as my husband taught me to have. And I know I have now, but uh, I think that's that's a good legacy to leave my children, to have a positive attitude about them. Don't hold grudges. I'm very much about people holding grudges, especially if it's with along family lines. You just, to me, you just don't do that. Have you seen that in your family at all? And how do you work through grudges? Well, I haven't, I don't think I've ever had a grudge. I've had my brother had a grudge against me for something that was so unexpected because he imagined that I did something that I did not do. And I couldn't explain it. He didn't want to hear me explain what happened. And for 10 years, he would not speak to me. Every holiday, I would try and get in touch with him. He just wasn't interested in me anymore, which was very hurtful because he was always someone to look up to. For his 80th birthday, his son made a surprise party for him. And the son invited me to the party because I had tried numerous times to get in touch with my brother and he just wasn't interested. My nephew invited me to the party and I went. My brother decided he'd pick me up from the airplane and he, and he would take me back to the airplane when I, because he was lived in Florida. And when I was sitting and we chatted, I mean, it wasn't like we didn't talk at all at that point, but as I was getting out of the car at the airport, he handed me an envelope that said, do not open until you're on the plane. Okay. So I opened it up and it was a letter to me from him about how he regretted those 10 years that he didn't speak to me because he realized now he missed out on something very important. And that's what I try to teach my family, my family members, that don't let things that disturb, even if it's true that something happened, make up. What's the cause to say hello? I mean, you don't have to be buddy buddies with your family if you don't agree on certain things, but to not talk to your family at all, that's terrible. So that's what I, I hope they've learned from me. Learn from their dad to think positively and to learn from me that you don't hold a grudge forever. It can hurt your growth, your thinking. And it, what is it worth to say hello? Even if you have to make a long distance phone call, it doesn't cost that much to say hello, just checking in to see if you were right. You don't have to have a whole long conversation just to let them know that you're thinking of them. That's what's important. Family. Family is very important. And I'm lucky to have a wonderful, a wonderful family, grandchildren and great-grandchildren and extended family who have accepted me as a family member. And I have accepted them as a family member. That's what's important in life. It's not how much money you make or what to do with your life. That's not great. Some people are not great, but they're family members and they're, they're wonderful people. That is such an important message. Thank you. I love that so much. I I feel like that that is a blessing that you just gave me. I am also curious, like there are hardships. I mean, if you've been married for 51 years, you've definitely had hardships. And how do you keep the love going? I know that you loved your husband right away, but how do you, how do you keep love alive? I was very lucky with my parents, not my mother so much, but my father had his own business. After we told my parents that we were married, so my father suggested that we go on a three-day the weekend honeymoon. I have to laugh because Jerry 
we made a reservation at a hotel in New York and we were going to stay overnight in New York. We were having a religious wedding and then we were going to go to a hotel and then leave the day for Atlantic City for a three-day honeymoon. So my father said to me, did Jerry make, where are you going for your honeymoon? So I said, well, we're going to the, I don't remember the name of the uh, hotel now. It was a hotel that when the Rodeo came to a Madison Square Garden, that's where all of the cowboys stayed. That's the hotel you had a reservation at? And my father said, that's not where my daughter is staying on her honeymoon. He said, I'll, I'll make a reservation for a suite at the Waldorf Astoria for you. So that's what he did. We had dinner there after the ceremony. And then we had this nice suite, a couple of rooms at the Waldorf. And then we left for Atlantic City for our three-day honeymoon. It was great. We had a wonderful time. Jerry's father at one time was a professional boxer and Jerry did college boxing. The family became involved with boxing. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you knew who Rocky Graziano was, but he was quite a well-known boxer, heavyweight boxer. And Jerry and I became very good friends of Rocky and his wife, Norma. We had always had fun. You're married and you do have bumps in the road and you have to learn to get over it be happy with one another. And that's what we did. We never held a grudge at one another, no matter how hurt we may have been or disappointed we may have been. That's not family. You don't hold a grudge. And even though it's, it's disappointing, you may hope that you would do better. But I was very fortunate. Jerry was very fortunate because after we came back from our honeymoon, my dad sat down with us and he said to Jerry, what did you do You know, when you were working before the war and when you came home? And Jerry told him what he had been doing and he thought he might go back into it. was what had to do with photography. And he thought he might be going back into that business also. My dad said, well, if that's what you want to do, I would like you to come into my business and I'll, you'll have every opportunity to work up from the ground, work in the warehouse and become a supervisor at one point if you're able to do that, if I'm pleased with you. And if I'm not pleased with you, I will set you up in any business you want to go into. How could you turn down that kind of a recommendation? So Jerry did. When we came back, we didn't have a, a home to go to. So my parents, the, the spare room became our honeymoon suite. He learned the business. Every morning I got up at six to make him a sandwich for lunch. And he worked in the warehouse for a couple of months. And my dad said, all right, I'm going to move you into a store. And that's how it progressed until Jerry eventually left that business and went into his own business, similar business, but not in competition. That was a good lesson for us, what to do with our children when we became parents. To treat your children like children who are growing up and they can't be a child in your image no more than they can become an image, a child in my image. They have to be their own person. And I think that's what we taught them. I love that. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your dad's business and how he got involved with Pet Boys? And My uncle Mo, who was the Mo of Manny Mo and Jack, was in the Navy during World War One. became friendly with Manny. They were both young Jewish men. And so there was a camaraderie when they were in the Army. And they stayed in touch afterwards. And I think both of them at the same time realized that automobiles were going to be something and they had to do something that involved automobiles and they said well you know automobiles need need gasoline to go anywhere why don't we do something like that get 
get things that are with an automobile. So they decided on automotive accessories. And that's how Pet Boys, they met this other fellow whose name was Jack. And the three of them became the Pet Boys. They came to the Pet Boys because one of the stores, the only store they had at the, at the beginning, had also a gas pump. The name of the gas was the Pet Oil or the Pep Gas or whatever. And I said, that's a good name. We'll call them the Pep Boys. And that's how the Pep Boys started. But the third man, who was actually Jack, uh, for some reason left right away. He wasn't involved with it, really. But the, the image of Jack was caricatures of Manny The Mo logo. And Jack. Yeah. Yes, the logo. Thank you. So they took my father's image and put it where Jack would be. And my dad became Jack to the business world. He was Jack. In fact, he tells the story of how when he was in his so to get back to the original question my father decided he wasn't happy just being an employee of the pet boys he wanted his own business but he wouldn't go in competition with with my uncle so he decided in new york it's a very interesting story about my dad i tell many people about this story he was commuting from philadelphia to new york five days a week he wanted to open five branches of his business and he went to a local he had he had a, a building or whatever it was that where he had his office. He went to the local bank and asked to see the manager. And he told the manager that he was looking for a loan. He mentioned how much money he thought he would need, that he wanted to open up five stores and a warehouse at the same time, which was fantastic to be thinking so much ahead. But the manager said, well, what do you have for collateral? And my father said, my good name. And the manager said, then you'll get the loan. And that's how my father went into business. He had a chain of stores that were called Strauss stores. He was very happy with what he did and after five years he decided well the business and that was after the crash on Wall Street but he made it through the crash and he decided he was going to move to New York so we moved the family I was nine years old when we moved from Philadelphia to New York that's the story of B. Franklin I love it I love it it's been a wonderful, wonderful life. It would have been more wonderful if Jerry had stuck around a little bit longer than he did, but he never, I knew that he had a heart problem, but whenever he went for a, a checkup or if he went for treatment and a, a new test, he would call it, a new test, he'd always say, well, doctor said everything's good. I don't have to worry. But I think that he knew the day that he died, I think he knew that he wasn't going to make it. I just believe in my heart that that's what happened. I say it was Jerry time to go. People, in fact, somebody mentioned to me, supposedly a good friend of mine. First of all, I didn't have a black dress to wear at the funeral. So I picked out the darkest clothes that I had to wear at the funeral. Friend, so-called friend of mine said, how come you're not wearing black? I said, well, I didn't have it. And Jerry never liked me in black anyway. So this is what I'm wearing. I lost respect for her because I didn't think that was the time to even discuss it. But anyway, I'm a happy person. I love life and I love being 100. And I don't care if I live to be 105. Like somebody says to me, why settle for 100? Why don't you say 105? I don't want to push my luck. I'm very happy. I love my family and we get along. And what's more to ask for? Happiness. And good health. Not what I have good health and I have my family and that's what's important to me. You are absolutely stunning. I mean, you've got good hair, you've got good skin, you're able to speak so amazingly. I am honestly blown away by you. You really are super B. Thank you. 
That's Kenneth's name, superlative for me. He calls me Queen Bee sometimes. And in fact, as a matter of fact, some of my friends who are very dear friends of mine will say, you're Queen Bee. I'm not a queen. I'm just lucky to be alive, to have a wonderful family. And as long as I'm here, I'm going to be happy. Last night, we took some, my oldest son and I took another couple friends of ours uh, out for dinner and we went to see a Broadway show. And it was a wonderful evening. That's it. I can't complain. You know, we all get aches and pains every once in a while, but thinking positive. I have a well keeper now. She's a lovely young woman and we have a lot of fun together. She's a 24 hours a day here. It's fun being with her and being out with her. Fortunately, that we found, her name is Brittany. We found Brittany and she's going to stick with me through thick and thin. That's so great. (laughs) I did read something on your bio that you have one blue eye and one brown eye. Is that true? That's true. Blue eye, brown eyes, except the brown eye has a little bit of blue on the top of it, which is not visible unless I lift my eyelid. My son, Jerry used to say, because he looked up the percentage of people, uh, Brittany has told me many times what this so-called ailment is, but I can't remember it. But Jerry looked it up. At that time, it was one in a million people have this eye condition. So uh, he would tell people, my wife is one in a million. And I said, he doesn't always mean it the way you're going to take it. One in a million. And I've been meaning to ask Brittany if she can go and Google, because I'm not Google-minded. All I had to do is say, Brittany, look up something and she'll do it for me. And I meant to have her look up this condition to see what the percentage of it is now. I doubt if it's one in a million. And, you know, people used to stare at me sometimes. And, you know, if I was standing close to them and they just, the light was shining or something, I said to Jerry, why are they staring at me? And he said, your eyes. So I, I couldn't understand that until one day I was in a delicatessen and there was a young woman standing next to me and she turned around to look at something and I noticed her eyes were the most gorgeous eyes I had ever seen. One eye was brown and one eye was green. And I, a young, she was a young woman and I'm staring at her and I said, B, you don't like to be stared at. So I looked away. But then I understood why people are staring because it's unusual. It's one, it was one of the most chance of seeing somebody with the eyes that I have. It's now 200,000 U.S. people. Oh, not a million anymore. We'll, well, we'll stick to one US. in a million. Right. <laughs> you are one in a million. I like that you were told that. That's really sweet. Yeah, that's that's my life. And it's a very, I can't complain about it. It's been a very happy life. It's There's just, one other thing too that I thought was really cool. Like one of your sons played with Donald Trump as a kid. <laughs> no, they didn't play together. They were in the same class. They went to a private high school and uh, they were in the same class and they were sort of friends. And one day, my son, Rick, said, I said, all right, if I invited my friend Donald to come over and play on Saturday, because they were both, I think, were about 10. So I said, oh, sure, have him come over. I'll make lunch for you. And whatever you want to do, you'll do. Donald came over, and I don't know what they did. I didn't sit with my children when they were having company. And then it was 12 o'clock, and I asked, I told them 
I was going to be making either chicken salad or tuna salad, but egg salad, whatever they would like. So they just, I don't remember what it was they decided on. But so I made the sandwich. I put some lettuce and tomato on it. I sat them down at the table and you can't see, I don't think you can see what I'm doing with my nut. But he sat down and he lifted up the top piece of bread and he put it back down and he said, Mrs. Franklin, I like my tomato sliced thin. So I said, I'm sorry, Donald. I'll remember the next time you come for lunch, which never happened. <laughs> he never came for lunch again. But that was Donald. We once, and Donald, when Donald was dating the actress, I forgot her name, but when he, before they were married, he, when he dated her, Jerry had, we had friends who were in the show that we were at. They asked us to come back backstage after the, the show, which is what we did. And Donald was backstage with his girlfriend and Rick and, and Donald recognized each other and they went and spoke together for a little bit, but I never liked Donald. <laughs> He was never one of my favorite people. But anyway, yeah, Rick, when Donald was running for president, Rick took out the picture of the class that they were in when they were in school, and he cut it out and put it in his pocket to show everybody that he really knew Donald Trump. I knew what Donald was before Donald became president. So um, I always teased Rick about that. Why doesn't he carry that picture around with him anymore? <laughs> That's does. cute. Did you ever want to be in Hollywood? You were a journalism major. Oh, Yes, I was, but no, I never wanted to be in Hollywood. But as a child, and I mean like maybe eight or nine years old, and my parents had company over and the stairs from the second floor almost went into the living room of the first floor. And as a nine-year-old or eight-year-old, I would take a toothpick because there was an actress by the name of Bebe Daniels, who was a popular actress at the time. And Bebe, my kid friends used to call me Bebe. I would take a toothpick and I'd stick it in my mouth like this and I'd go, yes, oh, absolutely, or something to that effect, because I thought I was going to be a great actress. But that thought left my mind because I really became involved with playing the piano for a time. So I became a teenager and I decided I wanted to do more than sit down and play the piano all the time, which I regret to this day for eight, more than 80 years. I regret it that I gave up the piano, but I'm sure somebody else has the piano and is enjoying using it. I mean, it's, it's not too late. You're still here. You could, you could do that I, still. No, I have arthritis in my hands now. I can't play the piano. I don't regret it. I loved it when I did it. And I don't regret But for a time, I did regret that I wasn't playing the piano. But I had other interests. I had grandchildren. Now I have great grandchildren. And as I said, I can't ask more. Yeah, it would have been nice if Jerry had lasted a little bit longer. But I, other than that, I can't complain about anything. As I said, I've said many times, everybody has bumps in the road, but you have to think about the road smoothing out a little bit at a time in front of you. And that's it. That's my life. Do you want to say anything about what's happening in the world now? Because there are some bumps happening again. It feels uh, very scary. And you've lived through the World War II. Yeah. yeah. Well, as a Jewish woman... I definitely have compassion very much. In fact, the restaurant we were in last night, the uh, manager is a young man who was born in Israel. His grandparents live in Israel now. And ha he happens to be a very happy-go-lucky young man, which I think is remarkable for what is going on in Israel. I feel for the Palestinians. The Palestinians didn't do anything. Hamas did it. Mm -hmm. And that's the one to be angry with. 
not the Palestinians. They've lost many people just like the Israelis have lost many people. I understand that. They somehow or other, they can't make Palestinian people here who are very much, and I say, well, should be concerned about their, their friends, their families, and what's going on with the Palestinians. And I don't blame them for that. But have compassion for both sides. Both sides have lost children family, grandparents, and I feel sorry for them. I do. I feel sorry for anybody who says, oh, the Palestinians, this, that, or No, that's not so. They've lost people too. They've lost family and grandparents. Do I think that it's right to hold grandparents who were just grandparents living in Israel and to take 200 of them and not know family doesn't know where their family is, where their grandparents are? That I do not understand because they have parents whose parents were killed and why not have understanding for them? I do. I feel sorry for the Palestinians who have lost so many people in the war, but that's for them. They should blame the men who killed innocent people. I feel sorry for them, but I don't like to be on a soapbox. I I appreciate your take on that. It's just crazy that, you know, we're seeing this, you're seeing this twice in your life. Yes. Yes, I was very lucky during World War II that my brother, who was in the army, was not called overseas. And in a way, I feel sort of guilty for him because I had so many friends. I I had friends of mine who were killed in the war. Nothing you can do about it. I hope that peace will come to everybody. I'm not a political person. I cannot understand how people who have choices to make, make the wrong, in my mind, they make the wrong choices. Don't they know what happened to their families in World War One? I? I don't know any person who really likes war except the people who manufacture guns and other things. Oh, that's another thing. Don't get me started on when the government with the with the guns, with all the people, the massacre that was here. Why don't they, I don't know, what would have, if, are any of their family killed? That they ha- Do you have to kill a family member to be aware of what's happening? I don't understand it. The world goes, goes spinning around and hopefully maybe someday, hopefully in the near future, people will realize that hate in the heart is not a matter means of good health and and hope i i hope and pray have difficulty thinking positively because there's so many people in this world who, who only think about killing getting even whatever it is that they do i i don't can't understand how unless they have family members who were teaching them that you have to get rid of the black people or the jewish people or the muslim people or whatever people for what reason what good is it a good cause i don't think so Look at what the Muslim peoples did for for the world. Look at what the Jewish people have done for the world. Did you ask the doctor whether he was Jewish or Muslim or, or white or black? You didn't. He had something wrong with you. You went to a doctor. And it might be coincidental that he happened to be Jewish, Muslim, black, white. We're all people with families and friends and should be, when we live in a wonderful place here. And why look for problems when there, there shouldn't be any problems? I agree with you. Thank you so much. I have loved Thanks. connecting with you. I can't wait to hear what my dad has to say. He is going to absolutely love you. Okay, tell him I said hello, dad. Is he single? <laughs> no, he's still with my mom. Are you looking for love? Yeah, that that is actually interesting. You never got remarried. What are no. your thoughts on that? It would have been nice if I met somebody as a companion. 
but I haven't met anyone that I, you know, when you're married to someone you think is great and wonderful, you're not really looking for for great and wonderful anymore. If you look for a companion, and fortunately, my family, my sons and my granddaughter by marriage and her husband, I mean, I can't ask for any more than what they've given to me. If I met somebody who enjoyed going to the theater, I mean, at 100, I still look to go to the Broadway. We were at a Broadway show last night. We took another couple out for dinner. And I mean, Ricky, my son, even said, you are very lucky. Look at all your friends. And I don't have that many friends left anymore. But look at all your friends. They stay home. They never go out for dinner. They never go to a show. They never do this or that. And look at what you do with your life. Yes, and I have a lot of it to owe to my son, who takes me out for dinner frequently, takes me out, although I pay for my own tickets and wear his tickets sometimes. But we go to the theater if there's a show that we want to see. And if there's a show, we have, especially Rick has friends who are theater people, actors who are in um, tour companies, a popular show. And if they are in a city that we've never been to, we get tickets, we fly to the city, we see the show, we fly back home. And that's, I'm very fortunate that we can afford to do all of that. But that's, there are lots of people who can afford it and don't do it. Why sit around and moan yourself that you're not doing anything if you don't get up and do it? That's What a great message. I absolutely love that. You know, I used to go to off-Broadway performances with my grandparents, and it's some of my fondest memories. My grandfather did the lights on Broadway, and he had a lighting manufacturing company with my dad for 40-plus years. So he loved Hollywood. He loved Broadway. He was a New Yorker, and he definitely had an appreciation for the arts, which carried on to me. That's great. Ken is more or less involved with people who were in the theater or whatever. But my grandchildren like to go to, to the theater, Broadway theater. And I'm happy that they've sort of gotten it from the two of us. Interesting thing is Jerry never was inter- really interested in the theater. I think the only thing I managed to get him to see was Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, and he enjoyed that. Jerry and I bought tickets for um, Fiddler on the Roof because my mother's family came from what well, was then Russia came to out of Russia because of pogroms that were happening. So I felt we, I bought tickets for her to, and my dad to go to see the show. And every time that I see it, I sort of get a little weepy because it hits home that that's what happened to my family. But they came to America. They made lives for themselves. One of my grandfathers was a, a rabbi when he was in the Europe and in Russia. And he came from a line of Orthodox rabbis. My great my grandfather my mother's dad she never talked about it I don't know whether he became a what they called a ladies tailor or not wherever they came from I asked after my mother passed away and I was taking a trip to what was called then called the Soviet Union and I asked one of my aunts did she know where they came from in Russia and she says oh she gave me the name and when we were but there, and I, we had a woman who was taking us around to different parts of the country. I asked her if she ever heard of that town. And she said, no, it really wasn't a town. It was what they called like a farm, like a big estate where I don't know what they did there. But that's, she said, that's where they came from. And I said, you're not a big help anymore. <laughs> because the whole country was called that at one point or another. 
But anyway, that that's was, cool um, that you got to trace back their roots, though, and kind of explore where you came from. Did you learn oh, anything yeah. from that? Not a thing, except <laughs> that I didn't like I didn't like the way the Russians were being uh, brought up. We were taken to a uh, a pioneers. I think they called a pioneers pioneers camp for children, and they were very gracious. We were told to bring candy and fountain pens and things like that. And when we arrived at the camp, the pioneers, the young people. I don't think there were any teenagers there. I think they were all in their, their late babyhoods. But they were ingrained with the Soviet policy of friendship. And it was very disturbing to all of us that they they were young kids. They were very happy being in the pioneer camp. That was really an honor for them. But it was very nice. Some of what they did, I thought, was very nice. When the bus, our buses reached the camp, the students, the, I call them students, the children would line up on either side of the roadway, and they'd sing a song greeting us, and they would give us little, I don't even remember what it was, little gifts like that. I thought was such a nice thing to do, despite what the politics were between the two nations. Here are children who were being friendly with the enemy. That was the only thing that was nice about it. If I had the time and the desire to tell you about some of the things, but it was really astounding to me how they were brought up. But they didn't know any better. And I, we just listened to their talk and whatever they had to say. And then we'd discuss it when we'd get back on the bus. An interesting thing is, am I taking up too much time talking? No, I am here for you. The interesting thing on the bus, on the trip that we were on, that we were about 40 people a little bit more than 40 people. Half of the 40 people were Jewish people and the other half were non-Jewish people. Half of us came from the East Coast and the other half came from the West Coast. When we were on the bus where Bobby R is, you know, familiar with Bobby R? No. It was, I think it's become a very well-known poem about what went on in in Bobby R in Russia at the time of of the war. It wasn't only the Jewish people on the bus, but all of us wanted to go stop at Bobby R that we were passing by. The Russian hostess on the bus said, no, we don't have time. We don't have time. We had to get back to the hotel. And our spokesperson in the group said, if we don't go to Bobby Yar, we're not going to lunch. We're not going on the on the bus of the boat trip that we're supposed to go on. And that's the way it's going to be. So she said, all right, but you only have five minutes to go visit it and then get back on the bus. So the bus pulled up. We all proceeded off the bus. And they had a monument in the center of this, like, park on a hill. Wording on the monument was something about how many people, not Jews, how many people were killed in Bobby Yar. That for many years, the blood was still coming up out of the ground from the people who were shot on the on the edge of this big hole. We weren't there for five minutes. We were there for close to a half hour. And she was having one fit. We managed to get to the, bo- the boat to go for the cruise that we were supposed to go on. I didn't go and my, my best friend who was with me on the trip. We didn't, neither one of us went to it. And a lot of the others who were on the bus did not go on the boat trip. Going into a Russian city, you couldn't avoid posters, monuments, everything praising the Soviet Union. Okay, that's their country, their life, that they're happy with it. It was interesting to be in in the Soviet Union at the time. I don't think I would have missed any, felt I missed anything if I didn't get there. It was interesting. It was very, very interesting. One of the members of our trip became ill, was taken to a 
one of the hospitals in Moscow, and she was kept overnight. They wanted to perform an operation on her because they said she had appendicitis or something. What she told us was they took her into the, an ambulance, took her to the hospital, put her in a soiled bed. When they went to take her temperature, the thermometer with her saliva, and then wiped it on a towel or whatever, and then, then tried to take her. She put up a good fight. And then she found out that they were tell, they told her that she had appendicitis and she'd be operated on in the morning. And she called someone who was on the tour with us, happened to be a young man who was very proficient in the Russian language. So she called him and she said, you've got to get me out of here, which is what he did. And that was the wonderful science of the Russian people that we were exposed to. It was a learning experience. Definitely. Yeah. Do you feel like you got to live the American dream? Oh, yes. I don't know if every American has the dream that I have. I lived my American dream. I married a man I loved very much. I had have three great sons and great grandchildren. And what else can you ask for? We're healthy. We for, we are very fortunate that we can afford to do some of the things that we enjoy doing. But that's what people dream for. And I'm just lucky that I had the dream. I'm so glad that we got to share your story of the American dream. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. And what is your dad's name? Wayne. Wayne Friedman. This is B. Franklin calling to say, welcome to this world. Enjoy your life and may you live to be at least 100. Amen. Thank you so much. Nice speaking to you. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Okay. This is Grandma B, huh? So clear headed, so sharp at 100 years old. It's incredible. She's really gotten a taste of wisdom where she has figured out that life is very simple. You just want people, you just want people that are friendly and where they're they're really interested in you. What does that really mean? That they care and not where it's not just talk, where you feel their warmth, their understanding, their encouragement, and where everybody wants to help each other out. She's willing to share her life with her family and with the people around her. But it's got to be positive. She wants to be positive, and she wants to share that that glow, that positivity with others. I, I hope that her blessing, where I could live to 100 and be as clear-headed as she is, and to be able to share my experiences as well with whoever wants to listen, obviously, but where, but where it's a sharing of practicality, where it's a sharing of our history. She described, really, what the show is all about. Better Call Daddy is really a show of Better Call Your Legacy, having that move into the future. That's what she's really doing as well. You know, it's really funny because some of the stories sounded very similar. You know, when you're Jewish, you really experience the highs and lows of persecution, of the aspect of where knowledge and wisdom are very important in our lives, of having growth and and trying to make each day a little bit better if we can. She was talking about her relatives, how they were persecuted in Russia, how the disaster of witnessing the Holocaust throughout Europe by the Germans, and then to see how still today that there are certain people that just want to completely annihilate us, and yet it's the same type of philosophy where they don't really value family values and take life at its true meaning. And at its true meaning, that means it should be absorbed by all people 
It's like eating food or getting your proper nu nutrients. If you can't see that being healthy and where we have good family values and where we can have some type of continuum, it's not just for one family. It's for all people. That's really thinking outside the box. That's really thinking beyond yourself. We've said this on some of the other shows, but until people can really graduate to a higher level where it's taken more towards goals of our people and goals of the world. Otherwise, we stay very small. One's only talking about one grain of sand, one individual. And yet, if you put the whole, the grains together of sand, you have a beautiful beach and you can really enjoy lying in the sand, but not, not if it's only one grain, you can't feel a thing. I thought uh, there was another interesting perspective I'd like to make one small comment on, is that you live with someone that's your, as my grandfather would say, your better half for over 50 years. And the idea is that we all want to still have that friendship and companionship, but where it's true. And it doesn't have to be where you have to have another husband or another wife. You can make relationships that are very meaningful, where you can live on with your life as long as you are connected to good people. She has friends and she has her family. And yet with that wonderful philosophy, she still even her own family has discovered that still there can be a miscommunication where a brother that she looked up to, just like my mom looked up to her brother, Mac, no talking for 10 or 11 years. It can go by so fast. And once that icing occurs, that coldness, it's very hard to come out or be dethawed from it. You know what I mean? It just, time just slips by. And then you wonder, why did it take so long to make up when you're family? And it's the same thing if it's somebody that you knew from your youth, that you were friends in high school, you meet him at a reunion or her at a reunion 50 years later, or even somebody you worked with, like in my case, hadn't worked with him for 20 years. And we're working together like brothers. The point is that if you really form true relationships and you're kind and you're compassion or compassionate for the other person, time can be timeless. You can put a relationship like that back together in a moment. And to begrudge or to feel ill will about people is really a distraction from what we're really trying to accomplish in life, which is a figure out a way for everyone to unite so we can have that beautiful sand on the beach and take a nice dip in the ocean and where we all can get along. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. <laughs> I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.